0: you are listening to intergenerational politics with jill Weinbanks and victor Xi, where we host weekly political discussions that are engaging and relevant to all generations with experts on various issues facing our country today hey, this is victor Shi. i'm going to be an incoming freshman at ucla and i'm also the youngest biden delegate jill can you give our audience uh, an introduction of who you are
1: Sure. I'm Jill Wine-Banks, and I'm not the youngest Biden delegate. (laughs) Um, I am a former Watergate prosecutor, the author of The Watergate Girl, former General Counsel of the Army, and uh, Chief Operating Officer of the ABA, as well as Solicitor General and Deputy Attorney General of the state of Illinois. I'm currently a MSNBC legal analyst and uh, co-host with Victor of this podcast.
0: And as always, we want to thank you for listening to Intergenerational Politics. Today, we cannot be more excited to be talking with Professor Jeff Stone from the University of Chicago Law School for part one of a Supreme Court debrief installment, because it is, unfortunately, the end of the Supreme Court term, which means that um, we have to debrief these cases. But luckily, we have some exciting and really consequential cases. I know for me, especially um, as a young person, I didn't really pay much attention to Supreme Court cases before COVID-19 hit. but With now the abundance of time, I've had some time to really look into some of these cases. And today we'll be specifically touching lightly on June Medical Services, which is the case regarding the abortion, and also the ruling on LGBTQ plus workers not being able to be barred from workplace discrimination. So Professor Jeff Stone is an Edward H. Levy Distinguished Fellow uh, Professor at University of Chicago. Professor Stone joined the faculty in 1973 after serving as a law clerk for Supreme Court Justice William Brennan. He later served as the dean of the University of Chicago Law School and provost of the University of Chicago. Stone is the author of many books, including his most recent, "Democracy and Equality: The Enduring Constitutional Vision." Oh, yes, Jill has it right here. So, for everyone watching, you can see the book, and for anyone listening, it's called the it's called "Democracy and Equality: The Enduring Constitutional Vision of the Warren Court," and then we'll also be talking about his previous book Sex and the Constitution, Sex, Religion, and Law from America's Origins to the 21st Century. So Professor Stone was also appointed by a president who we missed dearly, President Barack Obama, to serve on the President's Review Group on Intelligence and Communications Technologies, which evaluated the government's foreign intelligence surveillance programs in the wake of Edward Snowden's leaks. He has also written amicus briefs for constitutional scholars in a number of Supreme Court cases, including Obergveld versus v. Hodges, the marriage equality case, and woman, Whole Woman's Health v. Hellerstedt, the abortion case involving admitting privileges for doctors in Texas. So, Thank you so much for being here, Professor Stone. We really appreciate
2: it. My pleasure, I'm delighted to be here.
0: Yeah, so our first question is, I mean, to get this conversation started is like you wrote an amicus brief for Whole Woman's Health, which was obviously a key case concerning a woman's right to choose. And you also clerked for former Justice William Brennan when Roe versus Wade was decided. So that gives you a unique view of the issue of abortion. So we want to kind of get started with that topic. Um, a few weeks ago, we, start, we talked to Sylvia Tamarkin, who is the director of Birthright, a war story, about the most recent Supreme Court decision on a woman's right to choose, which is you know, June Medical Services versus Russo. And that case held a Louisiana law that required doctors who perform an abortion in a clinic to have admitting privileges in a nearby hospital was unconstitutional. Roberts joined in an outcome written by the four liberal justices. So first for our audience listening today, tell us how that decision fits with Whole Woman's Health and the broader context of Roe versus Wade.
2: So to start with Roe versus Wade, um, uh, Roe was decided in 1973 when I was a law clerk to Justice William Brennan. And um, it was a seven to two decision. Um, Many people think of it as having been uh, a radical liberal decision, but in fact, at the time, three of Richard Nixon's appointees to the court, Harry Blackburn, um, uh, Harry Blackmun, Warren Berger, and Lewis Powell, um, mm-hmm. were in the majority in the case. Um, and it was seen at the time as, as an extremely important and dramatic decision, but not one that was highly divisive or controversial. Um, and the court concluded that the right of a woman to decide for herself whether to bear a child uh, was fundamental to her uh, own dignity and autonomy, and that the state should not be able to interfere with that freedom unless it had a substantial uh, or compelling justification for doing so. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, over the years, from 1973 until the Whole Woman Health decision uh, four years ago, um, the court wrestled with exactly how to interpret and apply Roe v Wade as the court became increasingly conservative over the years. And with a a steady flow of Republican appointed justices to the Supreme Court over that time, uh, there were a number of moments when it seemed as if the court, given its makeup, would be likely uh, to overrule Roe v. Wade. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. One of the most dramatic moments along those lines was the Casey decision in 1992. Um, At that time, uh, seven of the nine justices, of the eight of the nine justices, had been appointed by Republican presidents. And the only one who'd been appointed by a Democratic president, Byron White, had dissented in Roe. And uh, the case came to the Supreme Court, and there was a very strong sense that the court would overrule Roe v. Wade. Um, And at the last minute, Justices Kennedy, Souter, and O'Connor, all Republican appointees, Mm -hmm. got together and decided that they would save Roe v. Wade. And they redesigned much of what the court had determined in Roe about the circumstances in which uh, the state can regulate abortion, but basically concluded that the government cannot regulate a woman's right to choose unless the um, uh, unless the government has a sufficiently strong justification mm-hmm. that the restriction is not an undue burden on the woman's right. 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 And over the years since then, the court has wrestled with what is an undue burden. So in Hellerstedt decided four years ago, Whole Woman's Health decided four years ago, um, the question basically, was whether the state could have a law that said that any doctor performing an abortion had to have admitting privileges in a hospital within 30, I think it was 30 miles uh, oh. of the, where the hospital, where the, 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 uh, the abortion took place. Mm-hmm. And the argument of the state was, this was not an undue burden on the, on the woman. Um, you just go to a doctor who has admitting privileges within 30 miles of, of a hospital, and no problem. But what the court said is that there were very, very few doctors who performed abortions in in the state who had admitting privileges because most hospitals, which were anti-abortion, refused to allow any doctor who performed an abortion to have admitting privileges. Mm -hmm. And the court concluded that the number of doctors that would be available in the state of Texas would shrink down to perhaps as small as one in the entire state and that that would pose an undue burden and it was therefore unconstitutional. And the state had no substantial need to do this. That abortion was a relatively safe procedure and that many, many more dangerous procedures could routinely be done in the state without a doctor having admitting privileges in a nearby hospital. So they said there's no, uh, there, this is an undue burden on the right of the woman. So this past year, the court agreed to hear a case from Louisiana uh, that had exactly the same law as the one the court had struck down in a five to three decision um, uh, four years ago in Whole Women's Health. And Justice Kennedy was the critical vote in that case. And he now has left the court and was replaced, of course, by Justice Kavanaugh. And the question now is would there be a five member majority to both overrule Whole Women's Health and perhaps even overrule Roe v. Wade? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the case came to the court. And I think the There was a lot of anxiety among um, women's rights groups that the court would take advantage of this opportunity. Um, In Russo, the court in a five to four decision held that the Louisiana law, uh, which was exactly like the Texas law, was unconstitutional. And the really shocking, surprising aspect of it was that the fifth vote for the majority with the four liberal justices was Chief Justice John Roberts, who had never voted in his entire career to um, strike down any law that had limited abortion previously mm-hmm. and Roberts wrote an opinion in which he basically said whole women health was decided only 4 years ago this is exactly the same case we don't have sufficient justification to overrule it nothing has changed in those 4 years therefore i even though i dissented 4 years ago i will vote to strike down the law in this case mm-hmm. uh, the four Other conservative justices were furious at Roberts for doing this. Um, And one of the interesting puzzles is why Chief Justice Roberts did this in this case. And the basic assumption on the part of most people is that at this particular moment in time, um, he's trying to retain the credibility of the court as an institution that has integrity. And that if you had five Republican-appointed justices, two of whom were appointed by Donald Trump, voting to overrule a four-year-old precedent um, that that would completely undermine the reputation of the court as a principled organization. Remember, he had said, there are no Obama judges, there's no Trump judges. Yeah. Well, if they had voted 5-4 with the five conservative justices on one side and the four liberal justices on the other, it would have undermined completely his defense of, of the court as a, a principled institution. Mm-hmm. So It was a very important and interesting decision.
0: For sure, and I know that we want to get into um, Justice, Kennedy, sorry, Justice Roberts. You know some of the broader trends with how he's voting later in the podcast. But I guess for my generation, who you know were born way after Roe v.ersus Wade and have never really known a time when abortion was not legal, do you think there's a chance that Roe v.ersus Wade will be overturned or restricted because of some loose interpretation of the undue burden standard that you previously mentioned?
2: So first, just a little bit of history to put it in context. Mm-hmm. Abortion was legal in Western culture, from the time of the ancient Greeks, through the Romans, through the Middle Ages, through the founding of the American Republic, um, at the time the Constitution was adopted, and into the 19th century. It was legal, it was common, um, and in a world where contraception was not very effective, abortion was a routine method of attempting to maintain control over family size, and over whether to have a child. And it was not seen as particularly controversial Mm -hmm. through all of that period. It was only in the mid-19th century that um, evangelicals began seeking to make a political movement that turned this around. And in the United States, abortion for the first time began to become illegal uh, in the late 19th century. Mm -hmm. And it was then illegal throughout, until Roe v. Wade, in, in almost every state. Um, Nonetheless, women were having roughly a million illegal abortions a year now in that period. And it's important for people to think about abortion to know what it meant to have an illegal abortion. Because in that world in which abortion was seen as a crime and as a sin, a woman who was pregnant and did not wish to carry that pregnancy to term could not simply go to a telephone and call up a doctor. Mm -hmm. Um, You had to find somebody Who was willing to perform this illegal act and if you were lucky you knew somebody a a sister or a close friend who had had an abortion and who could give you the name of someone to call but for most women that wasn't the case and so you would have to go to a cab driver and say you know i have a friend who's pregnant do you happen to know somebody who can perform an abortion Mm -hmm. or maybe an elevator operator and if you were lucky someone would give you a name and uh, a phone number or an address. And you would reach out to that person. And what typically would happen is they would say, um, okay, meet me on the corner of X and Y street at midnight and face north. And not knowing who, who was there, the woman would go there alone and they'd stand on the corner and someone would come up behind her and blindfold her because this was a crime. Wow. And They would put her in the back seat of a car and drive her to an undisclosed location. Mm-hmm. And they would take her into maybe a hotel room or maybe just a back alley. And someone who she could not know who it was, didn't know if they were trained, would then perform an abortion, which hopefully worked out okay, but often did not. Mm -hmm. Um, And this was the world of horror that women lived in before Roe v. Wade. And it was when the justices came to appreciate that as they were deliberating on Roe v. Wade, that they recognized that this was utterly unacceptable, in a free society, dedicated to the rights of individuals to control their own destinies. And that's what led the court to reach the decision that it reached in Roe v. Wade. Now, as I said, your question was about the burden standard. So in Roe v. Wade, what the court said um, was that there was a trimester approach. In the first three months, the court said, a woman has a right to have an abortion without any regulation by the state. It's a simple, safe procedure. And the state has no need or interest in getting involved in it whatsoever. In the second trimester, there could be health complications. And abortion in the second trimester, like getting your tonsils out, can have complications. And the state can put reasonable um, conditions on the circumstances in which a woman could get an abortion, uh, perhaps requiring a doctor perform it in the second trimester. But they had to be reasonable and serve a substantial interest. And then in the third trimester, the court held once the fetus is viable, the state could prohibit the abortion unless the abortion was necessary to protect the health or life of the woman, in which case they had to allow the abortion. Uh, In Casey, the court adopted the undue burden standard. It got rid of the trimester approach. And it said the, the central standard in all situations is whether the prohibition or the regulation or the restriction or the requirement, whatever law the state has passed, um, poses an undue burden on the freedom of the woman, which was a very vague and open-ended standard. And that was the standard, um, uh, well, technically up until today, it remains the standard. Um, We now have five justices on the court who unequivocally Mm -hmm. reject Roe v. Wade, no question about that. And the issue is whether they will follow the precedent. Mm -hmm. And allow Roe v. Wade to continue. Overruling Roe v. Wade would be a very big deal politically for the court, both positively and negatively, depending on what your views are. Okay. And um, I don't doubt that there are four justices who would vote to overrule Roe v. Wade. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know what Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts will do. Um, I know that he believes Roe is fundamentally wrong. No question about that. He, he leaves no doubt about that. But I also think he worries about the court being seen as overly political. And so my guess is that he will take a couple of years at least to get to the point of overruling Roe. But I would guess that if these five justices are still on the court in five years, that Roe v. Wade will have been overruled between now and then. Mm -hmm. And what that will mean for women is that in some states, um, the state law will allow abortion, and they will not be affected. But in most states, in a majority of states, abortion will be illegal again. And wealthy women in those states will be able to travel to a state where it's legal and have an abortion. But poor women in those states will not be able to do that. And they will be back in the world of the back alley. And that is truly tragic for our society.
0: Definitely. And Joel, I'll let you take the conversation from here and talk about Jeff's new book as well as the (laughs) LGBTQ decision.
1: Right, but before I do that, because listening to this was very fascinating to me, um, a couple of points I wanna make is a a woman who grew up during a time when abortion could be deadly um, and gaining the right to protect myself uh, and all other women, uh, I can't stress enough the importance and that it's time for Victor's generation to take over this fight and to make sure that it stays legal at the state level if indeed it gets mm-hmm. abolished at the federal level, right. uh, so I'm I'm relying on Victor and his peers to make sure we continue it. But uh, two other things: one is in our conversation with Sylvia Tamarkin about uh, abortion, she was um, felt that this was not as strong a decision, and that. There were a lot of ways to evade it. One, of course, is by loosening the definition of what is an undue um, burden. And that's up to the court to say, you know, what, what is too much of a burden yeah. and that it, it can not outweigh the state interest. Um, so that's one thing. And she said, you know, nowadays when Victor's generation assumes that they can just call up a doctor and get a pill, um, that that would be fine. But she pointed out, and I wonder if you could just comment if you think this is correct, she felt that it was possible that in states that bar abortion, that they would also bar self-induced abortion. That they might have a rule that says you have to have a doctor, you have to do something, or just simply outlaw the pill ingestion and make it a crime to take the pill in that state. Do you think that's a um, possibility?
2: I think there are two ways in which the court, there there are many ways in which the court can address this. Um, One of them is to say that Roe v. Wade is wrong. The woman has no right to terminate a pregnancy under the constitution. If a state wants to regulate that, it can regulate it, period. And it's none of our business. And so, yes, I think states could do that and that they would regard there to be no constitutional right. Um, Even more extreme, that a court could do, I don't think this court will go there, is to say not only that Roe v. Wade is overruled, but that the fetus, from the moment of conception, is a person. And just like a a parent cannot choose to kill their two-year-old, because they decide they don't want it, and to do that would violate the constitutional rights of the two-year-old. right? You could say that once there is conception, you cannot terminate the pregnancy, because that is the same thing as killing a two-year-old and that the fetus is a person under the constitution. I don't think we're gonna get there anytime soon. So, but the answer to your question is yes, I think that a state could prohibit the pill. um, And I think the Supreme court would basically say, it's none of our business if they were to overrule Rome.
1: It's, it's, I I will finish this topic with one other comment. I am currently blocking the name of the book and the author, which I am wholly embarrassed about, but um, I'm, A long time ago there was a book written that hypothesized a man being forced to be pregnant and it happened to be the judge in a case about abortion and how differently that judge sees abortion when it impacts his life and it has long been said that if men could be pregnant abortion would be wholly legal and I just want people to think about that a little bit before we you know, move on to, um, you know, other topics here.
2: Absolutely so, correct.
1: With the, yeah, um, and and I promise that um, I will make sure that before we uh, post this episode, I will remember the name of the book and um, the author because it's it's um, it's quite interesting uh, and it's good to hypothesize about. It. But let's go back to, and I'll hold it up one more time just because we should be plugging this wonderful book as well as your second book, which unfortunately it's too big for me to hold up. It's a little thicker, but um, we'll we'll talk about it. (laughs) Anyway, um, you and David Strauss have now written this book. And of course the title evokes so many things to me, democracy and equality. Uh, Just that alone, you know, evokes especially in an era now where we're talking about racial justice and all sorts of other Democratic threats that we are facing in this country. Um, but this specifically addresses the Warren Court, which again was during my lifetime, but not during Victor's, um, but which was seen as a very liberal, um, out there kind of court. And they decided very important cases Brown versus Board of Education, for example, a case that I don't think anyone living today can imagine yeah. a society in which there isn't. A Brown versus Board of Education, where separate is not equal. Um, Miranda v. Arizona. Um, and I remember the only time I've ever had to give a defendant the Miranda warnings, because normally the investigators do that long before I ever question a witness, but it was Rosemary Woods during wow. the tapes hearing. And it's a really dramatic and awesome responsibility to tell someone that they have the right to remain silent, they have a right mm-hmm, to an attorney. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, we just assume that's part of our lives, but these were very big decisions. Um, and I think there are so many things that are part of the legacy of the Warren court um, that may impact on how the Roberts court continues its its or creates its own legacy. Um, so if you could talk about that and, and particularly if you can relate any of this to Black Lives Matter, um, to racial justice, to the issues that we're facing now and, and maybe even mail-in ballots, uh, which is definitely a subject that concerns me greatly is that the court, I don't feel secure that they will protect the right of every citizen to vote and not to endanger their own life, their own health by going to a polling place during a time of a pandemic. So. Uh, it's a little broad question but i know that you can come up with a succinct answer to it
2: well the 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 title of the book democracy and equality the enduring constitutional vision of the of the warren court is basically meant to capture what my co-author david Strauss and i um, believed to have been the, the central understanding of the warren court of constitutional interpretation mm-hmm. um, basically the warren court worked on the premise that democracy is a good system, but that it's imperfect. And as Madison and Jefferson discussed at the time they adopted the constitution, one of the serious imperfections in a democracy is that majorities will often not be respectful to the interests of the other, of people who they see as something not like themselves whether it's the poor or whether it's African Americans or whether it's gays or whether it's women or whether it's immigrants, they will see them as people accused of crime, that's not us. And therefore in enacting legislation, they will often adopt laws that are not respectful of the interests of those groups in the way they would if they were the ones in that position. And the other thing that they worried about was that as a weakness of democracy is that majorities in control of the government at any particular point in time will adopt laws that are designed to perpetuate their power. That is, they will manipulate the laws to ensure both through voting and through all of the other mechanisms of democracy that they're the ones who remain in power. And you cannot trust democracy to guard against those two concerns. And courts, Madison and Jefferson concluded, were essential to put a check on democracy in those respects. And that's what the Warren Court saw itself as doing. Its most controversial decisions all fit within that understanding of what the role and the responsibility of the judiciary is in a democratic society. And decisions like Brown v. Board of Education, um, decisions like Miranda v. Arizona, protecting people accused of crime, um, decisions like Reynolds v. Sims, which guaranteed one person, one vote. uh, decisions like New York Times and Sullivan, which protected the right to criticize the government. Um, these were all decisions that were, that made manifest the limitations on majority in order to protect the fundamental working of a democracy. So in the current era, the Warren court, if it were in place today, would be very much engaged with issues posed by the Black Lives Matter movement, both in terms of freedom of speech and freedom to protest on the one side, on the rights of minorities, African-Americans and Hispanics and immigrants and so on, uh, on the other side, um, protecting those rights and of course, protecting the right to vote, uh, which is essential for democracy and where we cannot trust those people in control to, to limit the participation of the government to them. And so you could be sure the Warren Court, for example, unlike the Roberts Court, would have held um, gerrymandering unconstitutional. And that it would have guaranteed the right to absentee ballots um, in the same way that it held the poll tax unconstitutional. One of the critical Warren Court decisions held the poll tax unconstitutional because they understood it was there not to raise money, but to deter poor people and particularly African-Americans, from voting. And they would see lots of the manipulation that's going on today, as with the absentee ballots and so on, as exactly that. And they would have seen that as central to their mission. Unfortunately, the current majority of the Supreme Court, A, does not see its mission that way, and B, I, I hate saying this, but I think that they would be much more attentive to those issues if they were disadvantageous to their side of the political world. But because they see gerrymandering benefits Republicans nationally. So what the hell? Let it happen. I mean that's a terrible criticism of yeah. the of the court. But I honestly I'm certain it's true. Yeah. If gerrymandering were done in a way that disadvantaged Republicans nationally, they would have struck it down. And it's, it's terrifying me to say that, but I think it's true. Mm-hmm.
1: It's it's yeah. terrifying and also, I, I, I'm just, Victor, were you even aware that there was a poll tax? I mean, I, honestly, when you said that, Jeff, I went, oh my God, that was when I was alive and of thinking age.
2: Yeah. And yeah. I,
1: I, even I had forgotten that that was a Southern practice to prevent voting. Right. And we're watching a more modern way of stopping voting now.
2: Right. Um, yeah. And the one person one vote Rule which the Warren right. Court put in place was critical because what had happened over time is that s- as cities grew, people moved from the country into the cities. And so, districts, legislative districts for the state legislature and for the Congress, right, suddenly had populations with w- each with one representative, okay. with 5,000 people in one district and 500,000 people in another. Yeah. And the state legislature, which draws the lines, wasn't going to change the lines because they were controlled by the small districts. And so the Supreme court had to step in and say, no, one person one vote districts have to have equal number of people. And the modern equivalent of that is gerrymandering. Mm
1: -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm on the board of the better government association, BGA, which one of our big projects was looking at how to do a fair map. And um, it's not, easy to actually do a fair map where you don't draw districts that are crazy, but where you have equal representations so that you don't have that disparity in the number of people represented by a representative. Um, and But it's something that's absolutely essential, I believe. Um, now,
2: to be clear to the, your audience about what gerrymandering is, is that even if you honor one person one vote, you draw the line so your party has the majority has 51% of the people mm-hmm. in its districts. And the other party has 100% of the people in their districts. So even though the state is 50% one party and 50% the other party, your party has two thirds of the districts. Right. Exactly, and, and the, cases cases
1: that, the, that, yeah, mm-hmm. the cases this year that, yeah, the cases this year that addressed it, the diversity or, or the, the numbers were really dramatic in terms of
2: mm-hmm.
1: that happening. So, yeah, um, we. And
2: the Supreme Court, in an opinion by Chief Justice Roberts, in a five-four decision um, last year, said, "Well, that's a hard question to solve, and you know, we just don't think we should take it on."
0: Um, I mean, you can see that there's a there's this really um, bizarre picture online that shows how weirdly the districts are drawn. And um, they're drawn in a way where you can like map out like the whole alphabet, so like A through Z, and the, the districts are drawn like that. So I think that really underscores just one person, one vote isn't one person, one vote with gerrymandering, yeah.
1: Exactly. exactly. So moving on to your second, your, well, actually your earlier book, um, which um, I was at a book event where you spoke and uh, have the book and have thoroughly enjoyed it, called Sex in the Constitution, which is a provocative title, but isn't really exactly meant as provocative as it was. Um, Obviously, you did a lot of research for that book, Mm -hmm. and it raises for me, um, with that background, your commentary on Harris Funeral Home versus the EEOC, which ruled 6-3 to that gay and transgender employees are protected under Title VII um, of the 1964 Civil Rights Act and cannot be fired simply because of their gender identity. Um, And interestingly, Justice Gorsuch, who was President Trump's first appointee, wrote the majority opinion. I'm sure that surprised President Trump and all of his supporters. Um, Justice Alito, on the other hand, completely eviscerated the opinion and uh, couldn't have disagreed more, more obviously in the rationale. Um, So could you comment on that decision in this term, but also sort of in general, the progress of gay rights and um, LGBTQ?
2: Well, um, first of all, gay rights, the progress of gay rights in our country in terms of the law and constitutional law in particular has been quite remarkable. Um, And it has been very much the result of the work of the Supreme Court. Um, Here, justices like, uh, Anthony Kennedy and Sandra Day O'Connor, Republican appointed justices, um, have been critical in a, in a series of decisions, almost, almost always 5-4, um, first recognizing that it, it cannot be made criminal to engage in same-sex sex, and then recognizing ultimately that um, gays have a right to marry, which was unimaginable 30 years earlier. Yeah. And this would not have happened in our country, um, certainly not across the country the way it has because of the constitution, but even in many states, which changed their views partly because of what the court was doing. Um, it's been a revolution and an extraordinarily powerful and, and valuable one for a society. Um, and I, I actually should say, I think that the reason this happened sadly was because of AIDS. Because before AIDS, people who were gay kept their homosexuality to themselves. It was seen throughout society as not only a violation of religious beliefs for many Americans, but as weird and, and not, not moral and not appropriate. And so the vast, vast majority of people who were gay kept that to themselves and were very private about it. Their parents didn't know siblings didn't know, their classmates didn't know. Um, For the first 15 years I was a law professor, I only had one openly gay student. Um, And AIDS made that impossible. With AIDS, with literally hundreds of thousands of gay men in particular, becoming ill and in many cases dying, they could not keep who they were a secret and their friends and their siblings and their parents and their employers suddenly realized that this person I've, I've liked, I've respected, I've loved all of these years is gay. Mm-hmm. I would never have known that. I would never have thought I could have a friend who was gay or a son who was gay. And suddenly people were forced to come out. And that's what led to this fundamental transformation in our society. Hundreds of thousands of people died, but it made that happen. So the decision this term was a completely surprising one. The issue in the case is whether Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits employers to discriminate on the basis of race, religion, sex, and similar characteristics, um, prohibited discrimination against people who are LGBTQ, and the statute absolutely did not say that when the Congress enacted that law, no one intended it to apply to gays and lesbians and transgender people or would ever have imagined in 1964 that it would protect those people. And indeed in the years since then, many efforts have been made to amend the statute so as to add sexual orientation to the law. And it has it never passed the Congress. They've never been able to get Congress to amend the statute. The issue in this case was whether the prohibition on discrimination on the basis of sex in employment applies to sexual orientation. And so the question was, if an employer fires a gay man, but would not have fired the man if he was not gay, is that a violation of the Civil Rights Act? Justice Gorsuch, who wrote the opinion, is very conservative. I have no doubt that he's not very favorable towards homosexuality. And he took the view that the statute has to be interpreted in a purely literal fashion. And his view of literal was, if that man was dating a woman, the employer wouldn't care. But if the man was dating a man, he would fire him. That's discrimination based on sex right? and therefore that violates the Civil Rights Act and in his view, this was a simply literal interpretation of the section. And Chief Justice Roberts joined the majority, so it was a six to three decision. Um, as Jill noted, Justice Alito and the other two dissenters, Thomas and um, Kavanaugh, went nuts in their <laughs> dissent. They were just <laughs> curious. Yeah. How could you possibly interpret this statute, which everybody agrees was never understood to apply to gays, was never meant to apply to gays? No one who adopted it would have ever imagined that. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is literalism to the extreme and, and to the point of craziness. And I think there's something to that, frankly. Nonetheless, the court this term made this momentous decision that now makes it illegal for employers to discriminate against employees based upon their sexual orientation. And that is a extraordinary decision. And it's not one I think any of us would have expected from Neil Gorsuch and John Roberts. Um, and it's to their great credit that they were able to reach that decision.
1: I, I do think it's partly because society has moved in dramatic ways to mm-hmm. the acceptance mm-hmm. of this. But and it may be, point. as you pointed out that it's because people now know that they know and like someone who happens to not be um, or or happens to be in that community that they never realized. Um, This was an issue we dealt with, um, the Pentagon has dealt with for a long time. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, first it was this, don't ask, don't tell. So you keep it secret, it's okay. And then people started realizing that these were good soldiers, that Mm -hmm. Regardless of how they, what their gender identity was or their sexual preference was, they were doing a good job. And I had one general say to me, the best person I have who I could not have my unit effectiveness without is gay. And I can't get rid of that person for that reason. Too valuable to me. So I think it, it is society has moved and the court, of course, has to recognize in some way that a contrary decision might have been very, very uh, badly received. And going well, back to the case,
2: what you said about- the case that Congress has not changed the statute and right. that a majority of states do not have laws prohibiting discrimination based on sexual orientation. So although there's been a dramatic change in, in national attitudes, it has not- led to federal legislation or to state legislation in a majority of the states.
1: Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So it's it's quite interesting. Um, and so let's just look at, as a sort of a wrap-up question um, about Chief Justice Roberts and what his court, how they're behaving, how would you end up defining it if, if you had to define it today? Um, and what would be your prediction for how they will continue to behave as they Uh, continue to take on things that really are critical to our success as a democracy, uh, equal justice, the rule of law? Well,
2: I I think it's it's a mistake to exaggerate the significance of a couple of decisions, where Roberts and Gorsuch in this case, for example, did something surprising. Mm -hmm. Uh, The fact remains that these are the same justices who have voted in almost every case in the last couple of years, in a hardline, invariable, conservative manner on issues like voting rights, on issues like gay rights. Um, You know, remember Roberts opposed the the right of gays to marry, wrote a a furious Mm -hmm. dissentic opinion in that case only a couple of years ago. Um, So I, I think we want to keep it in perspective. But I think what's happening at the moment is that we have an extraordinary situation. At the current moment, we have a court with five justices appointed by Republican presidents, all of whom were appointed with highly ideological goals in mind, and and four justices appointed by Democratic presidents. And those nine justices divide ideologically, five to four on almost everything they believe in. And for them to vote five five to four, five to four, five to four, five to four on every controversial case will in fact undermine the integrity of the court. Judges are supposed to be neutral, open-minded, fair-minded, not following a particular predetermined partisan political path. And I think Roberts and particularly Breyer and Kagan, the three of them, are working very consciously to find ways to avoid that pattern manifesting itself in order to protect the court as an institution and their own reputations. How long that will work remains to be seen. What we need are some justices to be appointed who don't fit in those two categories. We've never had a court like this. If you go back and look at the Warren court, for example, some of the most liberal justices were appointed by Republican presidents. Mm-hmm. Earl Warren was appointed by Eisenhower. William Brennan, who my clerk, who was very liberal, was appointed by Eisenhower. Some of the most conservative justices, Felix Frankfurter and Tom Clark, were appointed by Democratic presidents. So there was no correlation between the the judicial approaches of the justices and the presidents who appointed them. Now we have this really dangerous situation where it can easily fall into the reality that we just don't respect the court. They're not judges anymore. They are, despite what Robert said, Trump judges and Obama judges. And that's not the way the judiciary is supposed to be, but I fear that we are headed in that direction. Now, I do think that's what Roberts is trying to prevent.
1: Do you think that the reason that we had people like um, liberals appointed by Republicans and conservatives appointed by Democrats is because we didn't have access to the same in-depth information that we now have, that we didn't have the same vetting procedures so that nowadays it's impossible for me to imagine that Donald Trump would appoint anybody who would surprise him, although I'm sure he is surprised by Gorsuch's (laughs) uh, handling of at least this case, Um, and that it's a a system of vetting that has led to this kind of uh, division?
2: Yeah, I think that's that's very much one part of the issue. Um, First of all, I think presidents generally we're not quite so concerned with the ideology of the justices or of the court. Number one, but number two, I think they didn't have the, the professional vetting that the Federalist Society now provides. So you know, people like like Ronald Reagan um, a- appointed uh, Anthony Kennedy and Sandra Day O'Connor, and George H. W. Bush appointed David Souter. They they were not liberal justices, but they were moderate justices, and sometimes they voted with the liberals and sometimes they voted with the conservatives. Um, and part of the reason for that is they weren't vetting them in the same way. Now, if, if Donald Trump is appointing someone, he has the Federalist Society who will follow these people from the time they enter law school and watch their, their path, read what they write as students, read what they write as lawyers, read what they write as, as government officials, and they know exactly what they're getting. And that's very different than it was. When, when Earl Warren was appointed, he'd been governor of California. Um, you know, he had not been a judge at all. And um, when William Brennan was appointed, he'd been a judge on the New Jersey Supreme Court for a couple of years. Um, and now it's completely different. Yeah,
1: it, it is. And uh, it's, I remember the days when um, all presidents took the opinion of the American Bar Association at both the federal district level, at the trial court level, as well as at the Supreme Court level. And there was no input from a partisan organization like the Federalist Society. So right. maybe we need to go back to that because I'm um, going mean, to hold up one more book which is uh, <laughs> yes. with RBG who we are all thinking and praying for and um, she's out of the hospital and we hope that she will make full recovery. Mm-hmm. We know she will. Yes, I, I say There's no doubt with the strength of that person that she will make a full recovery um, and she is critical and essential to, uh, what I consider to be the rule of law in America. Um, so I want to recommend, um, the conversations with RBG by Jeffrey Rosen. Um, he had the same editor that I did for my book and, um, it's of course fantastically written and edited. Um, so I think, is, is there anything else that you think our listeners ought to know? Is there some big issue we've missed or some, um, prediction that you have for the court that we you'd like them to know?
2: I would say that the most important thing is people have to vote. They yeah. have to know that their vote matters and that even though they may not feel any particular presidential nominee is perfect, on this issue, among with many, many, many others, but on this issue alone, you know, if they care about abortion, if they care about gay rights, if they, they care about the rights of of women, about about the rights of African-Americans, about voting. It matters, because who points the next justices will determine for our entire nation what happens on those issues? And if those are issues they care about, they damn well better vote. Yeah.
1: That is the best advice that anyone could give. mm -hmm. And these are lifetime appointments. So, Victor, for you and your peers, it will affect the rest of your life, whoever gets on this court. Oh, yeah. and so it's, it's really, really important to have an opinion and to exercise that, whichever way you come out, not voting is not an option and not voting may help a candidate who, while you don't like the other one, you dislike even more the one you're not voting for. Mm-hmm. So please get out there and choose. Uh, and it may be that at my age, I can say, there is no perfect, life just isn't perfect. And you're young enough that you still are idealistic, as I was. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was a 60s activist, and I am still an idealist. But I'm also a pragmatic realist. And I know that one of the two candidates is going to be president. And I'd rather weigh in on the one that I think, it, it so happens in this case, I have a strong feeling about greatness for Joe Biden. But if I didn't, I would still know that Donald Trump is not going to serve the ideals that I believe in. And so I have to vote for Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. please, all of you, get out there, be informed, be involved, vote, and help get out the vote.
0: Yeah. And Professor Story, I think you're our seventh guest to have on this show. And I think. Uh, All seven of them, when we ask them if they have anything else to add or if they have any advice for young people, they all say, get out and vote. And it may sound like repetitive advice for our younger audience, but I think it just underscores how it's so important that everyone needs to vote. And then also to add on to that, I think relating this back to kind of our conversation today, I think what we're seeing clearly is the evilness of Mitch McConnell and how if we don't vote for the senatorial races too, we may be stuck with some of these appointees who are all white they don't reflect America they are you know these conservative inexperienced justices who um, may put a lot of these civil rights civil liberties and basic you know laws at, at you know in danger
2: Absolutely he's correct. putting
1: forward people who are voted as unqualified mm-hmm. not just because of their political views but because they've never been in a trial yeah. court for example right. and that's a serious jeopardy you don't want to be in front of a judge who isn't qualified. Mm-hmm. -hmm. That's for sure. So, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You're right that it has been a pretty uh, consistent theme. And um, let's all think about
2: the the 2016 election. Um, Yeah, if 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 people voted who chose not to, and Hillary Clinton had been president, we would not have had Kavanaugh and Gorsuch on the Supreme Court. We would have had two other justices. And this would have been a completely different moment in constitutional law. And, and we would have had gerrymandering held on constitutional. We would have had the rights of, of African-Americans and immigrants and minorities protected in a way they're not being protected. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it's fundamentally important. And I, I mean, We, we would have had a justice
1: from my high school, Niles Township High School, Merrick Garland, uh, yes. if we didn't have McConnell. So to Victor's point about how important it is to not just vote for president, but to vote for Senate, because otherwise Mm -hmm. you have gridlock and you have a really, I think, an unconstitutional uh, interference with the president's power by McConnell saying, oh, no, it's within a year of election. Mm -hmm. We're not going to even let you nominate someone. Mm -hmm. That's an absurd.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Jill and I had such a great time talking with you, Professor Stone, and um, we hope you listening also enjoy this episode. So be sure to follow us on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, and other podcast streaming services, because next week we're gonna be releasing our second installment of this edition with another professor, Professor Leah Lippman, and send suggestions, ideas for future topics and speakers you'd like to see via Jill, myself, or our website. And yeah, so thank you so much, Professor Stone, for being here again.
2: My pleasure, thank you for doing this, it's terrific. Thank you, we enjoyed it.